Take your Bibles, please, and let's turn now to Colossians chapter 3. And we will start at verse 1 and read through verse 17. Now hear God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Please be seated today and let's pray together as we come once again to God's Word. Our Father and our God, as we come and even as we hear the words which you have breathed out, as we hear them read this morning, Father, they are convicting to us and we recognize that they are intended to be the double-edged sword that would pierce our hearts and expose the sin that remains within us. And so we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, give us understanding and illuminate to our hearts and our minds the meaning of these words in a way that would push aside all of the ways in which our flesh might tend to try and be tempted to try to subdue it, to push it down, to push it aside, and to justify the sin that we want to continue in our lives. Father, expose the sin that remains. Help us to see it and help us to hate it and help us to be persuaded and convinced, Father, of who we are in Christ Jesus now and give us the strength in Him and in Him alone 
to be able to put sin to death in our mortal bodies. Father, we desire to please you. We long for our lives to honor you and glorify you. And we long for you to be magnified, not just with the words of our mouths, but with everything that we are. And so we ask this morning, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to continue to dig even deeper into the powerful and encouraging words of truth, which we were talking about last week, this great reality that Paul is revealing all throughout the New Testament, and he's, he's putting a concentrated emphasis on here in Colossians chapter 3, this great reality of our identity in Jesus Christ, our union with Jesus Christ. And today, Paul will unfold for us the massive significance of that truth which we looked at in kind of summary form last week, the, the significance of this truth of union with Jesus Christ for how we deal with sin in our lives as Christians. And what an important subject that is, isn't it? For a lot of reasons. It is critically and crucially important for us to know how to deal with sin in our lives because we face it every day. It remains in us and we contend with temptation all the time. And sin is a problem because it hinders growth in our lives. It's impossible to grow as a Christian in maturity and in holiness if there is sin which we are leaving unconfessed and allowing to fester in our lives. And even worse... If we're allowing sin to fester in our lives, then it becomes toxic. It becomes corrosive. It's like pouring bleach into the oil of your car. It causes damage to lives and to relationships in the world in which we live. That's a, that's a fact. And it's a tragically obvious fact in the world that we live in now because countless people's lives and families and relationships are absolutely devastated by sin even though the world doesn't want to admit that the cause of it is sin. But God's word is clear. And even worse than sin being toxic and caustic and corrosive and destructive in our lives, in our relationship, in our world, even worse are the great warnings of God's word like 1 John chapter 3 where John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then he says in 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he's been born of God. And we're going to talk about what those words do and don't mean here today. But at least what they mean is that sin is a really, really, really big deal with eternal ramifications. And so purposeful, ongoing, unrepentant sin has, has exactly zero place or zero business in the life of a Christian. And, and, and it means this too, that if it's a big enough part of someone's life, 
it may be an indication that that person doesn't actually belong to Jesus. Sin is a really, really big deal that we cannot afford to take lightly in our lives. Verse 6 right here of our passage in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that it is on account of sin that the wrath of God is coming. It is on account of sin that Jesus Christ suffered and bled and died on a Roman cross and it is on account of sin that he's returning someday in order to judge all the world and put all righteousness under his sovereign foot. Sin is offensive to God. Sin is repugnant to God. God will not let sin remain in this world. He will come and crush all of it. And so sin has to be repugnant to us as well. And we must not allow any sin to remain in our lives. And we must seek to crush it. We must seek to put it to death, which is what this text is all about today. In this text, in verse 5, Paul exhorts us with the strongest possible language to deal with sin in our lives. And not just by keeping it to a minimum. Paul doesn't say, look, I know you're all sinners. I know you all have sin remaining in you. I understand that, that it's inevitable that you're going to sin, so just try to keep it down, okay? Try to keep it to a minimum. Try to keep it from getting too out of hand. Paul says there's no room. He doesn't deem some sins acceptable. That's not how we deal with sin. We don't deal with sin by, by trying to convince ourselves that as long as we don't let things get too out of hand and do too much damage, it's okay to let certain sins have free reign in our lives. Now, Paul says unambiguously that the only way to deal with sin in our lives, with any sin, with all sin, is to kill it. Put it to death, he says. Mortify it. Don't let it stay. Don't let it remain. Don't just show it the door. Put it to death. So Paul's telling us to deal with sin in our lives the same way that I deal with spiders in my house. I don't say, well, it's okay as long as there's just a few spiders. I don't get a jar and try to put the spider in the jar and try to contain it and keep it from running amok. I don't just show it the door and try to relocate it somewhere outside. I kill it. I mortify it with, with prejudice. Not intending to cripple it or to injure it or to maim it. I, I pound it with a shoe or a book. And if nothing else is around, I will use my bare hand. So that there's no question, no chance it's still alive. It's crushed, it's killed, it's dead, it's mortified. And see that and nothing short of that is how Paul exhorts us to deal with sin in our lives. Kill it. Put it to death. Don't, don't show it outside so that it might come knocking again tomorrow. And the only thing that makes it possible for us to do that, to mortify sin, is this great reality that we began to contemplate last week of union with Jesus Christ. So today we're going to jump back into this really, really important subject that we took up last week as we started looking at Colossians chapter 3, this, this truth, this reality, this fact that as Christians we're not just people who have learned in our minds some things about Jesus. 
And we're not just people who are, who are emotionally motivated in our hearts or inspired by Jesus. We're more than that. We're not just even people who have had great things done for us, great things given to us by Jesus. All of that's true, of course. But if all of that is all that's true, then we are hopeless to live the Christian life. We're hopeless to endure all the hardships and sufferings and sorrows of this world. And we're powerless to resist the enticements of sin and temptation or to wage war against the sin that remains in our own hearts and lives and to mortify, to put that sin to death every single time, every single day that it comes and presents itself in our lives. If all we are is emotionally inspired and motivated, then we're, then we're powerless to run the race with endurance and persevere all the way to the end. We're hopeless. If all we are is motivated by the example of Jesus and left to our own devices to do our best to be more like Him. That's not the Christian life. We're hopeless and we're powerless unless first and foremost we're in Him. Not just, remember last week's illustration, not just running off down the highway in our own strength and according to our own potential after the souped-up sports car that we really want to match the speed of. We can't do that on our own two feet. We can't do that under our own steam. We've got to be in the car. We've got to be letting its power drive us, and so it is to be in Christ. And so this is the great and awesome reality that we started unpacking and meditating on last week, the reality of the Christian life that through God-given faith, every true believer in Jesus, every true follower of Him is in Jesus, personally and vitally united to Him so that everything that He is, everything that He did in His incarnation, in His perfectly holy life, in His sacrificial death, on the cross, in His resurrection from the dead, in His ascension into heaven, in His enthronement at the right hand of the Father, where He intercedes for us with all the power and authority of heaven. And even in His second coming, all of that defines and drives our lives in Him. And so as we saw last time, everything that Christ is, everything that Christ has done is with us is available to us always in Him because He is with us always. He abides in us always, even to the end of the age, as He promised His disciples at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All of them are ours but only in Christ. And so, so, so through this wonderful and mysterious, incomprehensible spiritual union that we have with Him, God's blessed us. He's lavished on us, Ephesians 1.8, every single spiritual blessing that exists in the heavenly places. And so that means as we face trials, it's His presence that comforts us. It's His power that bolsters us and gives us the strength to endure to the end. When we face fear, it's His perfect love that casts our fears out as we draw near to His throne of grace and cast all of those cares on Him. When we doubt, 
then it's Him, Jesus, who, who authored our faith, who then continues to bring that faith towards completion and fill us with, with a growing confidence and a growing hope as we fix our minds on Him and frame all of our thoughts and desires and ambitions according to His truth and His goodness and His beauty and according to the reality of who we are in Him. As we battle temptation and sinful desires, it's His strength that strengthens us. It's His righteous, holy desires that that begin to forge our own desires to hate sin and to love holiness as we set our minds on Him. It's His life that is forming our life in Him as we are conformed to the image of His glory from one level to the next. And so all of this, this great reality of being in Christ, this this is what provides us with hope and with courage and with wisdom and with comfort and confidence and assurance and strength because Jesus Christ, who is our life, verse 4 says. Jesus Christ, with whom our life is hidden in God, verse 3 says, He provides all of that to us from Himself. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And so what great confidence there is in knowing that there's absolutely nothing in this world There's absolutely nothing in this universe that can threaten the security of the spiritual life and hope that we have in Christ Jesus. If it's up to us, everything can threaten us. If the deal is, Jesus did all of these great things and now you have to work really hard in your own strength to try to be good enough for Him, to try to be as good as Him, to try to live your life like He lives His life, then you're going to fail to try to endure sufferings and hardship in the way that he did, on your own, you're going to fail. Everything threatens you. To, to avoid temptation, to say no to sin, to put sin to death, to see your heart transformed and your life changed, you're going to fail. Everything will threaten you if you're not in Christ. But nothing can touch you. Nothing can destroy you. Nothing can condemn you. Nothing can possibly ever separate you or pull you away or or snatch you out of the omnipotent, always faithful hand of the Almighty God if you are in Christ Jesus. He's the ultimate high tower. He's the ultimate refuge. He's the ultimate shelter. In verse 4 here, Paul says that not only is our life hidden with Christ in God right now, right here, but also... When Christ, who is your life now, when He appears in the future, then you also will appear with Him. It's a promise in glory. And what that means is that being in Christ means being in Him, even in His second coming. Being in Him means being absolutely, so absolutely secure that that whatever might try to threaten to separate you from God, it's got to go through Jesus Christ first and it's not getting through Him. It can't defeat Him. And if it can't defeat Him, it cannot defeat you. And it cannot destroy your hope or your joy or your confidence or your absolute assurance of everlasting life and glory. And so this is where you have to live and dwell and abide in this reality that your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
That's why it's so crucial to set your minds on the things that are above, to frame our whole outlook of life according to this great reality of not just who Jesus is and not just what He's done to redeem us, but who we are in Him now that we are redeemed by Him. That's the only foundation that we can stand on that makes any sense whatsoever of the world that we live in and of the, of the meaning of our lives in this world. Jesus is the most real being in all of existence. He's more real than the sun that your, your eyes see shining in the sky because He made the sun. He set it in the heavens on the fourth day. He sustains it every instant that it burns. He's the creator of everything. He, he's the designer of everything that we call reality. He's the one who made it all real and gave it existence and, and put meaning into it. And if we want to have any hope whatsoever of understanding and, and making any sense at all of this world that we live in and our lives in it and the purpose of our lives and the significance of everything that we see and experience in this life, it's only going to come by viewing it all through the lens of Christ Jesus and His Word and the awesome reality of our union with Him. But see, that's not the lens that we came into this world viewing things through, is it? And the reason that is is because we did not come into this world in Christ. We came into this world in Adam, which means that we came into this world in sin. And in sin, we were spiritually dead. And what that means is that we were totally unresponsive to God. We were totally, by nature, incapable of accepting reality in the way that God defines reality. That's why we suppressed the truth and our unrighteousness, as Romans says, and exchanged it for lies and worshipped the creation instead of the Creator. We centered our focus on ourselves. And thought the world was all about us. Our perspectives, our interests, our desires, our ambitions. Making the creation itself our idol. And the source of any satisfaction and meaning and pleasure in life that we wanted. It was all about our own selfish ambitions. Instead of the glory and the majesty and the wisdom of the God who made everything and made us in His image. And when we live life like that, what happens? Everything goes radically askew. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, isn't it? When we, when we step off of the platform where reality and truth and goodness and beauty are defined by the God who made everything, and, and, and step off of that platform and onto the platform where truth and goodness and beauty get defined by me, individually, and not just by me, but by each and every person. Each, each person gets to define reality for themselves. When we step onto that platform, where we're defining reality apart from the fixed anchor point of God's truth and God's wisdom and God's righteousness, then everything plummets into destructive unrighteousness. That's what's going on in the world. And that's what was natural for us when we came into this world because we were all born in sin. And that's what sin means, to be spiritually dead, to be spiritually blind. Romans 8, Paul says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, does not submit to God's law because it cannot. And those who are in the flesh 
cannot please God. It's impossible for them to. So the reality is that 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 was all of us. We were all dead in our sins and trespasses. We were all in bondage to sin. Sin Sin was a ruthless taskmaster in our lives. Sin was a wicked king. And, and he, sin commanded everything that we did. All that we could do was sin and nothing else, rebelling against God in various ways. Even the things that we did that were outwardly, outwardly neutral or even the things that we did that were outwardly good things were done inwardly with self-serving, idolatrous, defiant motives. Every inclination of our hearts was only evil all the time. That's that's what we were. That's who we were when we were in sin. But now, Paul is telling us, that's not the case anymore. We're not in sin anymore. We're in Christ now, which means this, that that old truth-suppressing, God-denying, self-serving, worldly life that was the manifestation of being in bondage to sin... That was, that was powerless to submit to God or obey His law or do anything except sin, that old life is what has died with Christ now. It's dead. It's crucified with Him. And in its place, a new creation has been raised. A new life that is created and defined now by Christ's life in us where He is our Master and not sin anymore. So see, the point is we've got to to learn to think this way so that we can learn to live this way according to who we are in Christ. And and we've got to reject all of the old habits of thinking and all of the old habits of living where we used to say, well, this is just what I feel and what I do and I can't help myself according to who we were in sin. That's what Paul means in all of this. Since then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are of earth, for you've died. You've died. The old man is dead, and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Amen? For 2 Corinthians 5, the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. We've got to think, and we've got to live according to the reality of who we are in Christ. Now think back to those words of John that I mentioned a few minutes ago. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9, which are some of the most sobering words, right, that we encounter in the New Testament as Christians. In 1 John, John is describing the Christian life by way of the picture of of birth in order to emphasize the radically new nature of the Christian life and show what a, what a massive change has occurred when a person comes to be in Christ. They've been born again. They're, they're wholly new now. And so that's why he says in 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him. He can't go on sinning. He can't keep on sinning. Because he's been born of God. Ask yourself, what does John mean by those words? And at first, and very briefly, he doesn't mean that the presence of any sin in our lives 
means that we're not Christians. There are Christians who think, there are people who teach that that's exactly what it means. And all that does is cause a ton of fear and anxiety and pride because some Christians think that the goal is to attain sinless perfection. And some of them very wrongly think that they've attained that goal. And others know that they haven't and fear that that means that because there is sin remaining in their lives that they could never call themselves a Christian. They could never be assured of their salvation. That's not what John means at all. If that's what John meant, then all of the other exhortations that are given to Christians make no sense at all, right? Because everywhere throughout the New Testament, Paul is exhorting us to repent of sin. Well, if, if we, we're not supposed to have any sin if we're a Christian, then what is there to repent of? Of course, sin remains in us. He tells us to confess sin. He tells us that we are supposed to struggle daily against sin. He tells us here that we're supposed to mortify sin, to put it to death in our mortal bodies, and to grow in grace, and to be transformed on an ongoing basis by the renewing of our minds, to be conformed from one level of glory to the next, 2 Corinthians 3, into the image of Jesus' glory, so that we can lovely and gently confront other Christians who are sinning, and help them to grow too. See, none of that makes any sense at all if John means that once a person is really a Christian, then there's zero sin in their lives ever again. That's not what John means. It's not what he's describing. He's not promoting any kind of perfectionism in 1 John 3 because that would be a flat-out contradiction of everything else that the whole New Testament teaches about what the Christian life is as an ongoing struggle and warfare against the sin that remains in us, in our mortal bodies. So what John's talking about is this. He, he means that in the new birth, in the new life that is in Christ, there's a radical break with sin that takes place. It remains in us, but, but there's this radical break in terms of our relationship to it. It still remains in the life of a Christian and the character of sin is still the same as it was before we were in Christ. But the status of sin has fundamentally and radically changed. Our relationship to it has changed. In this way, before we were in Christ, everyone who was in sin, everyone who is in sin because they're not in Christ, they are in bondage to sin. As Paul says in Romans 6, they're enslaved to sin. They're dead in sin. They're powerless to resist sin or to respond to God and submit to Him or obey Him in any way, shape, or form. They're completely under the sway of sin. They're under its dominion, completely subject to the influence and sway of sin in their lives. And what John means is that someone who's been born of God, born in Christ, been crucified with Christ, who has new life in Him now, that's someone who is no longer under the dominion of sin. And that's so massively important for us to understand. This is everything that Paul lays out, for example, in Romans chapter 6, where he says that in Christ we have died to sin. We are the ones who... Sin isn't the one that died. It still remains in us, but we have died to it. We have died to its dominion. We have died to its slavery. And we have been raised with Christ to a new life whereby we are under Christ's dominion now. And we have to reckon ourselves that way. Sin isn't my master. 
Sin can't make me do what it wants. Christ is my master, and I must live my life for his pleasure. So when John says that someone's been born of God, that person cannot go on sinning. And when Paul says that in Christ we've died to sin, what they both mean is that even though there is sin that remains in us, that sin no longer reigns in us. The dominion's been broken. We've been set free from the bondage, not the presence yet, but the bondage of sin. So sin can, can now no longer condemn us, and we must no longer let sin define us. Because sin, in fact, no longer controls us. Because we've been born of God, we are in Christ. And so what we were was slaves to sin, but what we are is bondservants of Jesus Christ. What we were was under the dominion of darkness. What we are now is under the dominion of God's blessed Son, and we have to account ourselves such. What we were was people who only lived according to the sinful, selfish, prideful passions and inclinations of our hearts. What we are now are people who say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What we were were people who were, were conformed to the sinful ways of this world, but what we are now are people who are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. What we were was dead in sins and trespasses. What we are is alive to God in Christ. And we have to recognize what we are and live that way. And so this is, this is what Paul means in Romans 6 Verse 12, when he says, since we've died to sin, we can't let sin continue to reign in our mortal bodies and make us obey its passions. Because, because its dominion's been broken. Same thing that John means when he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. He means, even though you're going to sin, even though sin remains in you because you're not yet perfect, you don't continue to live under sin's dominion, where sin makes you obey at every turn. You can't live that way anymore. You aren't that person anymore. And so the progression of Paul's thinking here in Colossians 3 is exactly the same as what he's saying over there in Romans chapter 6. We've died to sin. That's what we are. And so therefore we must not let sin continue to reign in us. Here in Colossians 3, since we've been raised with Christ, that's what we are. We must seek the things that are above. We must set our minds on the things that are above. We must focus on what we are now in Christ. So that, here's the progression, in order that we will be able to do what was impossible for us before and put sin to death. Put to death what is earthly in us. And, and he means sin, right? Clearly, what is earthly in us means sin. That becomes clear as you, as you just read on because it involves things like sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. And in verse 8, things like anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from our mouths. I mean, that's a list that doesn't need a whole lot of explanation, right? We all know what those things are. And it's a list that covers both the outside of the cup the things that we do outwardly, but also the inside of the cup. The things that we think and even feel and desire and even our attitudes inwardly. 
Paul talks about sexual immorality there. Porneo is the word, and it's a word that just covers the, the broad spectrum of sexual sin from adultery and fornication and homosexuality to pornography and lustful thinking and attitudes. And so when Paul combines this word with the words impurity and passion, which explicitly refer to the inside of the cup, to our hearts, then really we can see that he is absolutely covering any and every kind of sinful sexual desire or thought or activity, right? Which involves anyone or anything other than what the Bible has prescribed in terms of marital relationships. Any sexual desire, any sexual activity outside of that with your spouse is what that word means. Any and every other sexual desire or thought or activity which is outside of the context of marriage is by definition sin. Anything that doesn't involve loving, sacrificial, respectful, intimate care for your spouse in a sexual way is by definition sin. Every wandering, lustful thought, every inappropriate image, every sexual desire for anyone but your spouse, you must not give yourself a pass to entertain sinful lust in your mind or in your heart, let alone in your life, just because you think it's minor, just because you think it's only inward just because you think you've got it contained in a jar and it's not going to get out and hurt anybody else. Kill it. Mortify it. Put it to death at the root which is in your heart and in your mind. And do not convince yourself that that's impossible for you because you are in Christ Jesus. Do not let Sexual temptation and sin command your affections and your thoughts because in Christ, its dominion is broken and you have to believe that and live as it. Do not concede and say, that sin is my master and I have no power over it because Jesus is your master and you are his bondservant and no longer the slave of sinful passion and desire. And see, the same thing goes for the rest of the things that Paul lists here in this passage. Any and all evil desire, any and all covetousness, or jealous discontentment which, which craves more than what God has so graciously and sovereignly given you. Every single time you say, but it's not enough, I need more, God. I can't be content, I can't be happy, I can't be satisfied. I can't be any other way than panicked right now because I don't have enough, God, when He's sovereign and He knows what you need and He's given you what you need. And He's even given us and, and He's even kept from us the things that we don't need because what we need more than those things is to remember that what we need is Him and to be prayerful to Him and dependent on Him all the time. This, this attitude of, of covetousness and jealous discontentment which craves more than God gives is, 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 Paul says, is what lies at the heart of idolatry. It's, it's what changes our desire from, for something from, from a good thing based on gratitude towards God to, to becoming a terrible idolatrous thing. 
It's got to go. The root of the discontentment's got to be mortified and crushed and put to death every time it, it appears in our lives. And also, he says, all anger and wrath and malice. Don't let selfish pride that says it's all about me and what I deserve and what I'm entitled to, don't let that selfish attitude have dominion over you so that other people's behavior towards you causes you then to burn with anger and hatred and bitterness towards them and to, to harbor a desire in your heart for vengeance against them and for malice and to wish bad things upon them. Instead, Paul says, fix your mind on Christ because He is your life. He's sovereign over everything. He's your Lord. He's your new master. It's not even you who lives anymore. It's Christ who lives in you. He loved you. He gave Himself up for you. He gave you mercy. He gave you grace. He gave you life. When you fell short of His glory, He gave it to you and it was all undeserved. And so now, it, don't pay so much attention to to your own entitlement and to what other people are doing to you as you do to Christ so that now you, no matter what's happening, you can let Him forge mercy and grace and forgiveness and love in you. Slay the sin of selfish pride and submit your heart to Christ. And put to death, He says, all slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not let sin have dominion over your tongue to slander people, to tear them down, to say, well, I just want to pray for them. I just need to let you know how we need to pray for them because they're really bad. And then you say a bunch of bad things about them because secretly and inwardly, it makes you feel much better about yourself and it feels good to rip people apart. Don't let yourself do that or gossip and tell stories about people that are only their stories to be told. Don't let yourself yield to the temptation to tear people down with your words instead of building people up, to curse them instead of blessing them, which Jesus says we're even supposed to do to our enemies. Bless those who curse you. Say good things about them. Don't let your... Don't let your sinful temptation and impulses that, that remain in your flesh command your tongue to speak things that are obscene and profane and full of worldly ugliness and defilement. We all do these things. But we must all say, we must all stop saying, I can't do anything else. I can't be expected to do anything else when I'm surrounded by these people and this wickedness and these circumstances in my life. Fix your mind on Christ. Fix your mind on His beauty. Fix your mind on His holiness. Fix your mind on His grace and His kindness and how much patience He's had with you. You know how to slay bitterness in your heart and anger in your heart and malice in your heart and slander off of your tongue and gossip? It's to start to think. Instead of thinking about how much you're entitled to, instead of thinking about how much bad they've done against you, it's to think about how much bad you did against your Savior and how much good He gave to you instead. How much grace He lavished upon you anyway. When I think about Christ, when I think about all of His holiness, when I think of how He responded to sinners like me by coming and laying His life down 
I realize this way that says I've got to give them what's coming to them. I've got to say about them what's true about them with these slanderous, angry words. This way is the world's way and it is the way of my flesh. But the way of my Father and the way of the ever-begotten Son was to come here and lay down His life and shed His blood and die for me. That's what's got to come out of me. That's what my sin has to be subdued by. Verse 9 says, don't let sin command deceit in you. That means stand firm in Jesus Christ who is your life because He is the definition and He is the epitome of truth. He has to define truth in us, in our speech, in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. We must not allow ourselves to be swayed by the, the lies of this dark and evil age and this dark world in which we live. And we must not allow ourselves to yield to the lies that our flesh wants to tell us about whether or not sin's dominion has been broken over us and about whether or not we're truly forgiven and justified in Christ Jesus and about whether or not His righteousness is true righteousness. Jesus truly has conquered the dominion of sin. So we can't live according to the lie that sin still reigns in us because it doesn't. We have to fix our eyes on Him and we have to tell our sinful passions and desires, who's the boss now? You don't own me anymore. You don't command me anymore. My life is hidden with Christ in with God in Christ Jesus, He's my master, He's my Lord. I bow to His dominion and no one else's, and sin has no dominion over me anymore. When you talk to sin that way, then your king swings the sword against it in your life. Sin has no dominion over you, maybe you think it does still. Maybe you think it's got a grip on you that you can never break, but ask yourself, is that grip in your life stronger than Christ in your life? It's not. And you're in Him. Does sinful temptation wield more authority over you than Christ? It does not. Because you're in Him. You're in Him to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted. In Him every resource, every blessing, every ounce of strength that you need to put sin to death in your mortal body and to mortify the deeds of the flesh is yours. All of it. Well, maybe that's not how you've been trying to deal with sin. Maybe you've been making a habit in your life as a Christian of, of trying to pursue holiness and sanctification in the same kinds of ways that false religions promote, that the false teachers were telling Christians in Colossae to do. Man-made rules. Man-made regulations, don't do this, don't do that, don't touch this, don't drink that, don't eat that, stay away from that. Maybe that's got the appearance of wisdom to you and the struggle towards holiness, but, but Paul calls it self-made religion. Up at the end of chapter 2, right before he gets into chapter 3, verse 23 of chapter 2, he says it's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Legalism and self-righteousness and piling rules upon rules, no value. That's not how you deal with sin in your life. 
John Owen wrote in, in his awesome book called The Mortification of Sin. That's, that's the book where Owen very famously said, you need to be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's a great book. Read it. That was a book, by the way, that was originally written as a set of sermons that were preached to, to teenage boys in the 17th century because they had trouble, as teenage boys do, controlling their passions and, and dealing with sin in their lives. And it's very, very appropriate, I think, and it's very, very telling and relevant for us. It's very telling how desperately needed it is for us, right? We, we need exhortations that were given to 17th century teenage boys. We, we need those as, as adults in the 21st century because things have not gotten better. They've gotten worse. People have not gotten more mature as they age. It's become more and more dire. Anyway, Owen wrote in there about this theme of putting sin to death. He says this. He says, mortification from self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. You get that? Trying to mortify sin from the basis that comes from self-strength carried on by my own devices with the goal of self-righteousness, that's what every false religion is all about in the whole world. If that's your strategy, if your strategy for dealing with sin and pursuing holiness amounts to you running as fast as you can after the sports car down the highway, trying to match its speed, you never will. You're not going to get anywhere and, and you're only going to find yourself on your face all the time. It's, it's sinking sand. You must and you only can mortify sin in Christ. You've got to stand on Him as the sure and only foundation. You've got to resist all of the old prideful impulses to be good in your own strength and by your own merits. Those self-righteous impulses have to be put to death every bit as much as any sin that remains in your life. This is what Jesus would have said to the Pharisees. And then on the other side of the coin, you've also got to swat away every single whispering lie of the devil that says, look at all of the sin that remains in you. How can you call yourself a child of God? Look at all of the sin in your life. Look at these thoughts. Look at these words. How can you call yourself a Christian? And you've got to stand firm on the fact that salvation from sin is by grace and not works, that your justification before God comes through faith alone, not on the basis of your own personal righteousness. That have, having begun by the Spirit through faith, we cannot be perfected by the flesh, as Paul says in Galatians. And you've got to move your focus again away from yourself, away from your sin, away from your guilt, away from your pride, and set it above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. That's, that's the only way to truly put sin to death. In every moment that it tempts us and tries to bury us with guilt and shame, we've got to set our minds on Christ. Jonathan Edwards, a great American theologian and preacher, he said this, he said that the will, the human will, he said, well, my, my will isn't capable of doing this. 
in Christ it is. Here's what Edward says. He says, the human will is defined simply this way. The will is the mind choosing. That's what your will is. It's your mind making a choice. And the deal is, Edward said, that the mind is always going to choose according to its greatest desire at the moment where the choice is being made. And as we saw last time, and in Galatians 5, the things that we focus on with our minds directly affect what we desire, do they not? And so we shouldn't be surprised when we're trying to walk and step with the Spirit and struggling and having all this trouble because we don't want to. We shouldn't be surprised if all the time we're not focused on Christ and His holiness and glory. That's the principle. As new creations in Christ Jesus, whatever our minds are fixed on will be what our hearts desire. And if you're focused on self, and if you're focused on sin, don't be surprised when those desires start to grow and swell in your heart and become harder to resist. If your mind is fixed on the things of this earth, if that's where our primary allegiance is, if that's where our attention is, if it's on all of the under-the-sun things and sinful things, and if we're mostly focused inwardly on self and what we want, then that's what we'll desire. And it'll be really hard for our mind to make choices to glorify God then. Our inclinations are going to be towards selfishness and sinful indulgence in all the ways that Paul's listing here in Colossians chapter 3 and everywhere else in the New Testament. But listen, here's the promise. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. How do you take that? How do you understand that? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Does that mean uh, if you delight yourself in God, He'll just give you whatever you want? That's not how I take it. Well, I do, but, but only with, with another thing in the middle. I take it to mean this, that when our minds and when our hearts are focused and fixed and filled with the glory and the holiness and the mercy and the grace of our great God, then our hearts will be delighting in Him and He will form our desires according to His holiness and glory and then give us what our hearts desire that way. Does that make sense? And I believe that's the very thing Paul's urging us to here in Colossians 3. Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Fix your mind on the things that are above. And He will give you new desires that transcend your desire for the things of this earth and your selfish desire and your, your desire for sinful stuff. You'll desire His glory. You'll desire His pleasure. You'll desire His holiness. You'll desire His promises. You'll desire His presence in eternity for all endless days. And He'll give you that as you fix your mind on Him. As you set your sights on Him. And on the great reality that you've died with Him. And that you've died to sin. It's not your master anymore. You've been raised with Him to new life. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God, and God. And He is your life. As you fix your mind on all of that and everything that it means 
in terms of the great significance of his, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement, his second coming in glory, then the significance of all of that and of all of the blessings that have been lavished on us because of all of that, that's going to fill us with new desires. They will be formed according to all of that and according to Him and His holiness and His majesty and His mercy and according to the reality of being in Him. And when we have those new desires that come from being fixed on Him, then He will give us the desires of our hearts. He will give us the strength to kill sin and sin won't seem nearly as daunting anymore. He'll give us the strength to put to death fleshly desire for earthly things. And He'll give us a desire instead, a bigger desire for purity, for holiness, for love. And He'll fill us to overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit when we seek Him, when we set our minds on Him, when we pray for it, He'll answer that prayer. Sinclair Ferguson says that in every moment of struggle against sin, You've got to say this, listen, in every moment of struggle against sin, you say, Ferguson's words, I can never be more justified than I am right now. In this very moment, even with these thoughts and desires, for I am still trusting Christ and by the strength of His grace, these sins will be put to death. Can you do that every moment that you struggle with sin? Whether it's lust or whether it's pride or whether it's greed or whether it's anger or bitterness. Then what you do, having said that, is you take the sin, whether it's past sin, whether it's present sin, whether it's sin that you're being tempted towards in the future, you take it to the cross, right? When you feel a weight of guilt and shame because of sin in your life or when you're tempted to sin, when your desires are sinful, when your fleshly impulses are luring you and enticing you in, in whatever ways that they do, in your mind's eye, you take that sin to the cross where Jesus Christ died. Listen to Ferguson describe how to do that. He says, I have to let my mind's eye see the darkness of that afternoon outside the gate of the city of Jerusalem. Oh Lord, let me witness the reproach of Jesus Christ. Let me see the sun darken for shame as the onlookers leave wailing and beating their breasts in agony. Let me hear the cry of Christ who bears the wrath for me, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And hearing it, let me look at my sin and humbly say, Lord Jesus, the answer lies here in this sin of mine which has caused you so much pain. Ferguson says you cannot go that far and not then want to put your sin to death. You see? And then while you're picturing the cross in your mind's eye, you hear in your soul the words of Jesus recorded in God-breathed Scripture where He said, hanging on that cross, it is finished. The work is done. The price is paid. The blood is shed. The life poured out. The sin forgiven. And you are justified through faith in the crucified and risen Christ. You are hidden with Him 
in God. Now put your sin to death. Jesus looks on you as he looked on the woman caught in adultery and he says, I don't condemn you. And then what's he say? Go now and sin no more. That's what it is. Look to Christ. Know what it is to be in Christ and by his power and life within you, put sin to death in Christ at his cross. Set your minds on him. Seek him and be strong in the great strength of his grace. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, help us understand what this means. Help us understand how this works. Help us understand what this is and what we are in Christ Jesus. Help us understand that we're not on our own just trying to imitate Him from the, from the flesh and from our own strength. Help us understand that sin isn't our master anymore. That it wields no more dominion over us to make us do what it desires and to answer to sinful passions in our lives. Father, keep us fixed on the cross at all times. Keep us fixed on the glory of Christ at all times. Father, help us abide in Him and His truth in us that we might live according to His will. And so, Father, give us this strength, give us this grace to not only see the sin that remains in us and all of the ways that it stains our thoughts and motives and desires and words and deeds, but to hate it and desire to put it to death and to be able to in Christ. And to be able to put on His righteousness and holiness more and more. Father, we know that You do not condemn us. We know that we are in Your almighty grip. We know that nothing can separate us from You in Christ Jesus. We know that no one can condemn us or bring a charge against us in Christ Jesus. We know that no one can ever snatch us out of Your hand, Father. Give us this confidence and give us this strength, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.